Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, February 2nd, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful effective, efficient, and accessible tools I have ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. On the website at whyagain.org, if you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people do all of that soon and often primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they apply these tools in their lives actively, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we'd appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number, I'll be able to turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. 
Alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org, and or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And if you choose to do that, we will address a comment or question on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for your feedback or input. We greatly appreciate whenever anybody chooses to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when we get feedback and input about how these things are landing for you. I mentioned yesterday that I had reached out to David Gruder and um, Lori, his partner, who did the podcast, The One Thing, T-O-T, podcast.com. And um, the bottom line is they've agreed to Join us on MindShifters Radio, and that will be happening on the morning of Friday, the 23rd of February. And they'll get up a little extra early, and we'll have our regular time, and they'll call in, and we'll discuss what they're trying to accomplish with the One Thing podcast and similarities between what they've been studying in source material and what we have been using from a variety of different sources. And on top of that, Dr. Gruder has agreed to let me interview him about his newest project, which is the Center for Enlightened Self-Sovereignty, which is a separate kind of a thing from the the One Thing podcast, the TOT podcast. So if you're interested, you can mark your calendars that uh, on Friday the 23rd, in our regular Mind Shifters radio time, we'll have a couple of guests. And um, thinking back through it, Susan Bingham asked a question yesterday about somebody that they mentioned in their podcast who knew a lot about Bibles or was using Bible study, and I listened back to that podcast, and I didn't hear that. So maybe that was another source you were talking about, or maybe I'm just I'm not listening with the appropriate attentiveness. But... If that comes to mind, Susan, and you want to uh, look look it up, I'll be happy to discuss it with you. But my my experience in listening back to the podcast was I didn't hear a reference to somebody who's well versed in the Bible and interpreting it differently. So, so. Here we are. It's a Friday. We had our support group last night. We listened to a Guy Finley talk. 
we had discussion. We have plenty of time for conversation this morning. And lots of plates spinning and balls juggling as we work to make it easier for each of us to understand and put to use, effective use, these powerful tools. And um, in several of the things I was doing this morning and listening to it, it just, I, I was just moved several times to think, okay, I really need to highlight this even more, especially now as we're going to be inviting other people to uh, join us on Mind Shifters Radio or I'm doing other interviews for the On Your Mind podcast. My choice with this work is to specifically focus on practical tools and how I can make use of those tools to improve the quality of my life. I am not interested in debating with people about who's right or who's wrong or what was the first or who was the last or what's the best, whether it's about biblical interpretations or it's about whose worksheet is better. I'm just interested in the results. And if I'm getting solid, consistent results from a set of tools, that's what I'm interested in. And I've had very good experience with all of the tools that I've shared with the Mindshifters radio group or anybody in the Mindshifters support groups. And I'm that's basically my, you know, screening technique is that I make sure that I try this stuff for myself and that it's effective. And so then I present it. Now, is it the same as Michael Rice's worksheet? No. Is it very similar? Usually. Is it my understanding that the same fundamental energetic shifts are taking place? Yes. And so effectively, whether I'm using one of five or six different worksheets that we've talked about and presented here, or I'm using an energy technique, or I'm using a different type of prayer or meditation or a breath technique, what I'm most concerned about is, am I getting a shift away from fear and towards love? Am I getting a release of unpleasant or painful energies within my energy system? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to keep using that tool. And if the answer is no, I'll put that tool aside and pick up another one. Because as we keep trying to point out in this work, there's no shortage of tools that are slightly different, sometimes dramatically different. And effective use of the tools is what I'm I'm personally committed to and making making tools available to people 
especially those when the the people who hold the copyright or the patent on these tools make them available for very low cost or free. That's where I'm concerned, or that's where I'm committed to sharing those tools and resources with people because there's a greater chance that will reach a, a wider audience, and that's the commitment. When I um, aligned with Michael's work and Michael and Jeannie's work back along the line, he would say pretty much in every workshop, whatever his workshop was, whatever title it was, he would say, we are committed to getting these tools into the mind, into the hands of every mind, heart, and being on the planet, whether they have money to pay for it or not. And so there might be an absolutely wonderful, powerful tool, but if it costs 500 or $3,000, it's going to severely limit how many people are going to get access to it. And so, bless those people's hearts. If they're using those tools and they're finding good results, more power to them, and that's not something I'm about to promote because I'm going to spend my time, intelligence, money, and energy promoting things that are available almost free or totally free, like what Michael and Jeannie are doing with their tools and this Internet show and the support groups. And so we've talked about it before. It's not really free. It really isn't free. It is without financial cost, right? It is it is offered without any demand for financial payment, but it does cost you. It costs you your time, your intelligence, and your energy. As this work, I just opened up the lesson ten in the way of mastery to keep reading here. And it, it asks you to commit to awakening. Because if you don't, it won't happen. Earlier, some of the headings in previous chapters talk about, you know, if you're going to birth the mind of Christ, you've got to start thinking about this before every breath. You have to commit to vigilance. You have to commit to monitoring your thoughts, taking full responsibility for them. So there is a cost. It's just not a financial cost. And I was having a conversation with somebody last Friday. He's got, you know, tremendous alignment with very good tools, tools that were developed from Dr. Rice's core tools, etc., spent a lot of money putting the program together and uh, and offering it to people, and then offering it at a greatly reduced price and getting a grant that lets them offer it to a whole bunch of people for free, and there's almost no buy-in. That the participation is so low 
said, it's shocking. And he was tossing back and forth ideas about why that might be. And I said, you know, it's just because it does cost. It has a cost associated with it. It isn't a financial cost, but it is a cost in your time, your intelligence, and your energy. It takes a commitment. It takes a level of vigilance. It takes a level of willingness to look at things that aren't so pleasant within your mind-body energy system. So, in Lesson 10, it's talking about accepting the truth that's truth always. I'm awake. I'm safe. I'm at peace. And I should start asking myself, what do I truly want this moment to be for? Because as I choose to focus my awareness on different things and speak to it, act from it, that's what I'm going to be communicating to people. And where we left off in Lesson 10, it says, commit to awakening to the place that's already within you. orange highlight in this book for a previous lesson where it says every word that that we're offering in this Christ Mind series whether it's this book or other books is here to help you awaken to the place within you that holds the love that you think you're searching for outside of you it's already there it's in your essence it's in your core and the idea of this work is to help you awaken to that. The exact quote is, with every word that I utter, my one intent is to reveal to you the place within you that is the presence of love, capital L, love, that you seek. And so this Lesson 10 says, commit to awakening to the peace that's already within you. And the text reads, as you cultivate that practice, you will find that the peace that is already within you, that you have touched a thousand times in a million different ways, it begins to grow more constant, like the rays of the sun beginning to filter through the fog that has settled into the mountain valley. And the fog obscures things obscures the clarity of things. Your peace descends gently, like a dove, descending, as some would say, through the crown of the head, down through the brain mind, and down even to the heart, the abdomen, and throughout the cells of the body, while the body lasts. Gently relinquishing the world rests on your decision to choose, you get to choose to teach only love. Because you've realized that when you do not, the effect that you immediately know is painful, conflicted, and unfulfilling. And that's what you no longer want. So here, you've begun to transcend the world that you have made and to reclaim the world made for you, a world that rests in perfect union, in the union of the Father and the Son 
God and the offspring, creator and created. And that way, you can rest into that way, and it is easy and without effort. The difficult thing is how our culture and our thoughts and our dramas and traumas have been layered into our lives, shoved into our intellect like garbage in a garbage can that makes it difficult for us to rest in the peace and see the world that was made for us. They ask us to think about what value have we ever placed on the things of the world that has resulted in the peace we seek. Whatever it is, is only temporary. Oh, I so desperately want that big screen TV. Oh, I so desperately need a bigger car, a faster car. Oh, I so desperately need a partner who is financially stable. I so desperately need X, Y, or Z. Even when we get those things, the shift in our energy, the satisfaction, the peace, the love that we think we're feeling because of someone else or something else is a very temporary energy state. And as Guy Finley points out, when you attach and you identify your mood or happiness to the possession of or acquisition of one of these things or some other person, as soon as you get it, now you're going to have to generate fear. You're going to have to be vigilant. What if you lose it? Then there goes your good feeling. Then there goes your peace. And there goes your love. It doesn't work to think, oh, this automobile will do it. This relationship will do it. This new career will do it. You know, if only I could take a trip around the four far corners of the world, then I'll be at peace. And when we're in that cycle, peace never arrives. And if it is, it's only temporary and it never lasts. But this book suggests that you be a creator. And it says, a creator abiding in enlightenment knows that all events are neutral. So neutral that they have no effect except for those who choose to be caught up in illusions. The creator who is awakened, merely creates out of devotion to the mystery of that which was created and has created him or her. The mind of an enlightened creator does not arise in the morning and say, how can I survive yet another day in this world? In the morning, when the enlightened creator arises, the question becomes, quote, how this day might I extend the treasure of the good, the holy, and the beautiful? How can I, right where I am, experience these treasures, even within the space and volume of this body? How can I look lovingly upon what my physical eyes show me, so that I discern and or dis extract from that only the good, the holy, and the beautiful, and therefore give them to myself and others. Close quotes. The mind of an enlightened creator knows that of themselves they do nothing. And yet, 
in each moment of decision, they can allow the great power and mystery of capital L love, life, creation itself, to direct their course. They can utilize time to refine their ability to hear only the voice for love. They can do that moment by moment, breath by breath, day by day, until time is translated into eternity. And the mind rests, it reclines in its perfect union with its creator. Events still occur. The world is still what the world will choose to be, unaware that there walks in its midst one who is awake, one who needs to make no show whatsoever. The awakened creator merely is the presence of wakefulness, knowing that in each moment they will now be informed by the guidance of the comforter the guidance of right-mindedness, the guidance of enlightenment. So they're no longer attached to fearing things like, oh, what should I say? Oh, I wonder what I should do here. How will this person take it? How will that person take it? The enlightened creator understands that the world from the outside perspective, from all that drama and trauma, is no longer a concern. They experience their very life as an ongoing, flowing mystery, as though something else were living through them. This is the meaning of my friend's words, quote, let that mind be in you which was in our Lord Jesus Christ. Close quotes. That's how you might read it in your Bible. That mind is the mind of perfect freedom. It does not belong to anyone, and yet it can be cultivated to flow through you. But only, only, it can only be cultivated in to flow through you if Every fiber of your beingness is completely committed to holiness. You cannot leave a finger outside and get to heaven. All of your mind, all of your energy, all of your gifts, all of your very awareness must become committed to being the presence of peace. This is what no one can do for you. Sitting at the feet of enlightened teachers will not do it for you. The wisest of students are those that hear the word and put it into practice diligently for themselves. Not for their mother, not for their father, not for their spouse, not for their brother nor their sister, not for the sake of the planet, not for the sake of the universe, not for the sake of the new dawn that is coming, not for the sake of anything but themselves. For their self, capital S self, is what the Creator created. 
And that capital S self calls out to you to honor it. Honor it by separating your capital S self, your higher self, from the illusions that you have allowed to make a home in your mind. Honor it by becoming completely, totally committed to teaching only love. There is no other way. Yes, you can learn to sit in meditation and allow the mind and body to float free and to relax. You can learn rituals that help to focus your attention so that you remember what you are committed to. And the distractions of the world do not seem to catch you or hook you as much. There are many strategies that you can enjoy and experience. However, in the end, it is only this. A quiet choice within that no one recognizes, that no one sees, and that no one hears. The text goes on and says, this is why I once shouted at the Pharisees, quote, Oh yes, you indeed get your rewards standing on the street corners, letting everybody know that you are fasting and praying when you should go into your own closet and pray, close quotes. That is, to be in your own privacy, making not a show, but simply using each moment to reaffirm your commitment to learning all that love is. How do you learn all that love is? By teaching only love by sharing only your loving thoughts. By the word teach, I mean simply that you choose to express only capital L love in each moment. Forgiveness is an act through which you learn what love is. It's an act that carries you into a transcendence of the world. Canceling your judgments, canceling your perception is an act that teaches you the truth of life and love. And by sharing only loving thoughts, supportive thoughts, as you look gently upon the Christ in another, this is a way that takes you into the transcendence of the world. Looking upon all things of this world and seeing their perfect harmlessness their lack of ability to constrain you or imprison you, this is the way that takes you beyond the world. And yet, all of these things rest on the practice of, quote, seeking first the kingdom, which means not to believe in me, not to have some theological notion about God or what God is. It does not mean adhering to a certain religion or a certain church doctrine because the kingdom of heaven is within you. The kingdom of heaven is the very power of choice. Hearkening back to the previous two chapters, which pebble will you choose to drop into the still clear pool of your consciousness? Imagine 
reaching a point where just prior to every action that you engage in, without any ritual, without any difficulty, without any grand shows or displays, without burning incense and without lighting 40 million candles, without the Gregorian chants or the rock and roll or whatever you choose, without any of that, before every action, in the silent temple of your heart, you make a simple choice. Quote, in this moment, I am going to discover what it means to teach only love. Close quotes. It might be a simple smile. It might be to let your eyes gaze at the beauty of a flower and say, Oh, it is very good. It might be that you eat your breakfast and actually be there while you're eating it instead of letting your mind run off to the office. Here, beloved friends, is the way to the truth that sets you free. You must absolutely become totally committed to being awake for no other reason than you have realized you have no other choice. You've already made all of the other choices and they've led only to pain. Awakening happens when you've made every other choice and you commit to awaken, to teach only love because everything else you've done has always only and forever led to pain. Area code 541, you're in the air. Yes, Celinda here. Good morning, Dr. Tim. Thank you very much for um, sharing your purpose with this work. Uh, It really um, focuses me. I like that. Thank you. And you and Dr. Michael. Um, I just wanted to share a little um, revelation that happened to me yesterday, which was very, very uplifting for me. I have a very good friend. We've had many differences in our lives, but our friendship has stayed solid and strong. And I went to visit her. And in the course of the conversation, um, I, I love this friend because I feel very comfortable and safe and happy with this friend because she really tells you what's on her mind, and she tries to do it in a very gentle way. And um, she mentioned to me how she's so happy that I'm working with this Aramaic. Um, sometimes she feels like uh, she'd like to talk about something else, and that was wonderful, wonderful feedback for me. But she happened to mention in the four years since I've started this work, one, two, uh, almost, Uh, four and a half or so, that she has been um, aware of an amazing growth within me. Uh, Growth uh, was very humbling and very um, uplifting for me to hear that because many times I think, oh, I haven't gotten there yet. Uh, So many times I resonate with uh, Susan's feelings because uh, perfectionism was what was demanded on our family. And I just wanted to share that with you. It was very helpful and 
encouraging, and I will put even more diligence into my work. Well, I'm happy for you that that was your experience of that feedback. And it is certainly it is certainly a, a nice testimonial for you. Right. Encouragement, words of encouragement, I think. And so I be encouraged. Um, pardon? So be encouraged. Oh, I am. There's nothing like a little bit of appreciation to help one continue uh, in a particular way, whether that way is really, really um, a deep way like what you're reading today, or even whether it's just habits that we're trying to change, a little practical habits and and, um, just a little world, world, uh, just a little word of encouragement, uh, observation, appreciation for the work that we're doing um, to bring more joy into our lives or more joy into another's life. And they're both the same, aren't they? Well, uh, there's some teaching that addresses that directly as the truth, yes. So... (laughs) Anything else we can support you in today? Yes, just one real quick. You mentioned the other day about Ho'oponopono. And having lived in Hawaii for the 15 years I did, I have a very fondness in my heart for the Hawaiian culture. Um, And I have a little tiny book that was uh, shared with me by, I believe, a Tahitian gentleman, um, Ulrich A. Dupre. And it's called Ho'oponopono, the Hawaiian Forgiveness Ritual as a Key to Your Life Fulfillment. It's a teeny tiny book, and it has incredible pictures of both Tahiti and Hawaii that go throughout the book as he attempts to convey his understanding of Ho'oponopono. And I highly recommend it because, as far as I'm concerned, it is the most lucid and clear um, a representation for me of this work, and it really—it's like Aramaicisms uh, popping out in every corner, just in a different languaging. So I thought I'd share that title with you all. All right, thank you. The title of the book again is what? Ho'oponopono, and the subtitle is the Hawaiian Forgiveness Ritual as the Key to Your Life's Fulfillment by an Ulrich, um, U-L-R-I-C-H-E, Dupre, D as in Delta, U-P as in Peter, R-E-E. Okay. Thank you. And... And who knows, maybe he'd be open for, if he's still alive, the gentleman, he'd be open for an interview. That might be sweet. All right. I am complete. Thank you, sir. 
You're welcome and deserving. I'll mute you so you can listen to the rest of this hour and the next. And as always, thank you for the suggestion about another book to read or another person to interview. I'll look into that and get back to you about Ulrich Dupre. We have time for a comment or question, or I will go back to Lesson 10, reading our way through Lesson 10. Lesson 10 picks up where I left off with recognizing the presence of Christ within. And somebody... in the chat room is putting up a YouTube video, a link to a YouTube video, and a question. And the question is, can I talk from the website? You know, um, I think that's a really good question for Jeannie, and I think she's talking about getting it so people can talk through the app called Podbean. But unless you call in on the website, um, and you've got a device that goes through the web, we can't hear you. So um, Jeannie will see this, and I will recommend, if you haven't done it already, the checking out the free app called Podbean. because that is now Jeannie is posting these internet shows on both Blog Talk and Podbean. And um, I believe in her explorations, the, um, the app has a, a feature that lets people interact directly with the show. Area code three six zero. You're in the air. Who do we have? Hi, Doctor Tam. It's Julia. Welcome. Um, I I'm the one who sent to the YouTube, and it's a video by Brother Ananda Moy, and he's a student of Paramahansa Yogananda, and um. I wanted to share that with you because I listened to it yesterday and he talks about um, uh, the meaning of life and what our purpose is. And he was talking about how the the mind and the intellect um, can't understand. Um, it doesn't have the ability to understand uh the meaning of God, and that it, we have to go by the way of the heart, and um, or the the spirit, maybe he said. And um, so there's a lot of synchronicities in in his talk and to the way of mastery. And um, I really enjoyed it, and I thought you would probably enjoy it also. So I wanted to share it with you. 
And I'm really enjoying the way of mastery, and I'm really grateful that you're um, sharing it with us. And I did have one question. Will you just be going through the way of the heart, or will you um, go through the other um, two? Well, uh, we will probably go through the entire 35 lessons, as we did back in uh, 2022. And I'll just remind you and anybody else listening that those files are available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. Me reading it with commentary and the audio files of me just reading it, each of the lessons individually. So that's another resource. And, you know, some people who are really into this will go back and listen to some of those you know, files of me reading less than three or four and just look for the differences because it, it does get different. There are different things that I that jump out at me that I spend more time talking about each time I go through it. So, And that's what a lot of people experience for themselves when they read any big, powerful text like this. Um, It's different every time because they're different every time they go back to read it. So that it seems as though the the text can actually appear to be a different text. So, so I will look into that video. I've already copied it, put it in the browser, and sent myself a link so I won't lose it. So thank you for that. Um, yes, you're welcome. I, I think you'll really enjoy it. He has a nice sense of humor, too. And, um, yeah, it's just really just like the way of mastery. I mean, very, very, very similar. And it's a, and also I wanted to ask you if you ever read um, uh, read the book that you talked about, um, Paramahansa Yogananda's teacher, um, Sri yes. Yukteswar. Yeah, yeah. Sri Yukteswar, and I am about halfway through it, and um, essentially, because of his style of writing, it doesn't really lend itself well for me to share much of it on the internet show, except to say, he is pointing out the similarities from the Western scientific world and various deep spiritual teachings, including their lineage, and basically saying it's all the same thing, just as what you're pointing out here with this video. So here's somebody who was a student of Paramahansa Yogananda, and he's talking about it, and it sounds like he's basically talking about the same deep truths as are in The Way of Mastery and A Course in Miracles. And that's basically what Sri Yukteswar's book is about, only he's doing it far more point for point and he's he's putting out the Sanskrit and then the interpretation of the Sanskrit and then tying in different Western scientific principles that were known back then you know the 1940s so nice when I, when I get through it, if there's any great big gems, I'll make sure and share them. But it is slow going for me because it doesn't really fit my style of, of reading and, and, and integrating work. It's far more technical. 
Yeah, yeah, that's what I kind of thought it might be when I looked at it. So I haven't uh, listened to it yet. I think there's an audio copy on YouTube of it. Of Sri Yukteswar's book? Yeah. Well, that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how they would would handle reading the Sanskrit that he has in the book. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I haven't listened to it yet, so if I do, I'll let you know. <laughs> well, I'm I'll I'll check it out because if there's a any kind of an audio of people reading from Sanskrit. I have a curiosity about that. Like when Dale Allen Hoffman does his chanting or toning, um, sometimes I'm in the mood to just chant along with him or tone along with him or listen to his toning and let it vibrate through me. And that's what I've heard a lot of from people when they're doing chanting. They're the most powerful stuff and chanting sessions people have ever reported to me come from people who are trying to stick to the original or as close as they can to the Sanskrit, the Sanskrit words or letters or vibrations. Yeah, there's a lot of energy in those. All right, is there anything else we can support you with? Um, that's it for now. Thank you for reading this. And um, like you said, the way of mastery um, does seem to my soul also. So very, very appreciative. Thank you. You're very welcome and deserving. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the call. And we've got about 10 minutes left for any other comments or questions related to anything we're covering, way of mastery, Sri Yukteswar, who was the the master, the guru for Paramahansa Yogananda. And um, if you haven't read that book, I mean, uh, for me, the Paramahansa Yogananda's book, The Autobiography of a Yogi, is fascinating for the personal side of it. I mean, he's literally talking about his life story from being a young boy all the way through to near the end of his life. And um, fascinating. It's got it's got the little personal politics involved in it. It's got family politics involved in it. Um, it's got stories about saints that he visited and um, masters that he's had experience with that have incredible stories of their lives so it's it's a far more palatable read for me than a technical book about the similarities or differences between western science and eastern philosophy so our call in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, like Celinda or Julia did, we can have a conversation.
Nobody raises a hand. I'm just going to read another section here from Lesson 10 in the Way of Mastery. The next section is titled, Recognizing the Presence of Christ Within. Text reads, Your higher self is calling out to be recognized for what it is. It's an awakened master. The presence of Christ in you which would inform every step, inform every decision, inform the quality of your perception. It would inform the very nature of your forever expanding transparent consciousness. It would do this because it is your consciousness alone that can reach out and embrace all created things until you literally realize that all things have arisen within you, within your consciousness. That is how big you are. That is how grand you are. Why? How could that be? Because that is all that you are. Now, let's be clear about this. A little sidebar. You are not your thoughts about yourself. You are not a body. You're not a gender. You're not a member of a political party. You're not a father or a mother or a sister or a brother. You are consciousness itself. And that is all that you are. The text goes on and says, you are the ocean from which waves and waves of dimensions and worlds have arisen. That mind, capital T, capital M, that mind is what you are required to let be in you even as once it was within me, as I walked upon your earth. This is required. Please don't make it difficult. Whenever you hear of a teacher teaching this or that, ask yourself this. Do they offer me simplicity or complexity? Do they offer an ordinary peace or must I have several trappings around me? Do they give me complex meditations and prayers and things to do? Or do they simply remind me of the capital T truth and ask me to rest in it? Will they tell me I need to go on a thousand pilgrimages? Or do they remind me that when I make my cup of tea in the morning, heaven is present. And it is present if I will re simply remember who is making the tea. Christ is. Consciousness is. The text says, Be there, therefore not distracted, for in the end of this age, there is coming forth a whole smorgasbord of those who profess to be teachers of enlightenment, and they will guide you into all knowledge. Look carefully. 
do they demand of you that you follow them? Do they demand of you that you give up your own discernment? Or do they ask you to look deeper within? Do they ask you, what are you feeling? What do you think? What do you want to do? Are you willing to accept responsibility for the effect? What do you believe? What do you want? Do they tell you you are free? Do they tell you I am equal to you? I am just in the role of a temporary guide for you and someday you will be far beyond me. How do they speak? What do they teach? Is there fear filtering into their words? Do they believe that they must teach you to control the forces of nature, the forces of the mind? Do they teach you to protect yourself against evil? There are many who profess to be teachers of enlightenment, and there will be many, many more. When you hear these things coming from them, turn and flee from their presence, for you do not need them. You're already beyond them. Ask only, how can I extend my treasure this day? And then, lay up treasures where moth and dust cannot corrupt. That is, where time and materiality and the body and the world cannot hook you. Rather, lay up treasures that are in heaven. What are those? Those are the process of forgiveness the experience of peace, unlimitedness, recognition of your unlimited power, that which brings you joy and puts a smile on your countenance. Lay up for yourself these treasures and all good things shall be added unto you. For there is a way of being in the world that requires no planning or striving. Though to enter, it does require that you relinquish fear. To enter, it requires a commitment to teaching only love until the mind is once again whole and undivided. There is a way of being in the world that is not here at all, in which the body still abides. Yes, you still just act like everybody else thinks and acts. That is, you know your name, and they know your name. You know where you live, they know where you live. You know which car you're supposed to drive. You know whom you go home to at night. And yet through it all, there is pervaded in your consciousness a transparency as you look upon all these things. So we will pick this up again on Monday. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love. And everything else is false. Thank you to Celinda and Julia for your comments earlier. And I'll welcome Jeannie Rice.
Thank you, Dr. Tim. I appreciate you. I hope you have a really good weekend. You too. You're welcome and deserving. Blessings. Thanks. Bye. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Munchifters Radio. And today is Friday, and it's February the 2nd, 2024. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. And even though we are working on the enlightenment, if you have a question that pertains to just the forgiveness process or a challenge that you have or whatever, um, you know, press one, ask your question. We're here to support you. We'll give Michael just a moment to dial in. And uh, once again, I'll say, you know, we are running this on both Blog Talk and Podbean. And it seems to be working pretty good. You can pick up all the archives. If you've missed any of the shows, you can go to whyagain.org and click on the Kaboris button. And down underneath it, there is, there's one that just says Enlightenment, and that's about the book itself. And then there's one that says Enlightenment Study. And that's where I'm putting all of the archives of just the second hour where we're discussing the Enlightenment book. And so we appreciate you participating. Several of you have an enlightenment book, and we're following along. Michael gives you what page and paragraph we're on, as he's appreciate you being with us and participating in this study. And Michael says it's not a study, but it's it's gathering the knowledge so that we know um, the, the truth. And uh, anyway, Michael should be with us here in just a minute. There he, he is. is. So I'm going to say. Is. <laughs> I'm going to say welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart. Welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. Is Miss Susan with us today, Jeannie? She is. Oh, great. Well, Miss Susan, I just wanted to thank you for your uh, input yesterday uh, regarding mm-hmm. churchianity. I awakened with, you know, it's not a question I had really considered before. And uh, for me, it points up one of the reasons why I'm so appreciative of this uh, this interaction we get to have, because you aroused questions for me that I hadn't asked myself, and uh, and this morning had just totally clear guidance that resolves, uh, I think, that whole issue, and that is what you know what I my my waking time in the morning is usually when I get my best guidance and uh, as I was awakening this morning it was like recognizing that what what I've been calling churchianity would be the dark side of what people would call Christianity but in reality it's really only the dark side of the people engaged in whatever it is whether you know there's a dark side to or we, we say there's a dark side to you know each and every religion and there is no dark side to any religion uh, they're mm-hmm. just people who haven't dealt with their own shadow and so okay. from now on whenever I refer to that I'll refer to the shadow side of religion or Christianity or whatever it is we're talking about rather than and then you know refer back to the people involved who are still working out of the shadow and that you know one one gentleman who was really into psychology in Florida this goes back years ago and was really into Carl Jung and such and he and when he started to do work and started this he was like you know this work is shadow work on steroids 
And so thank you for that uh, that that feedback. It was really a nice gift. Much appreciated. Oh, um, thank you for being so nice about it. I appreciate that a lot. Thanks. Good, good thought. Well, I appreciated it too. Yeah, it was just so crystal clear this morning. It's like, Michael, you're, you're, you need to resolve this. You need to do some work around this. And yes, there is a shadow side. And and uh, ultimately, right. we all need to, you know, to me, again, the, the Greek, one of the distinctions I want to keep making with this work we're doing with the Enlightenment book is that the Aramaic is always pointing toward the actuality, and the Greek is mostly pointing toward the reality, toward the, the mind's perception, which would be the shadow side. So, nice refinement for me. Thank you. Well, thanks for being so gracious about it. Right. Any more morsels for us? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, I've been processing, thinking about a podcast that Dr. Tim had us listen to with a man named Gruder and Laurie Morris. I, I'm not sure Gruder's first name, maybe it's John, I forget. Anyway, um, he combines a lot of things that I've been thinking about. One one thing he warns against is, you call it premature enlightenment or something like that. What's your word for it? When you get there before you're oh, there. Premature, say again? When? When you think you're there, like I have a friend who often says, when I'm telling her about something that's been on my mind, something that I need to do work on, she says, well, after all, we're all, we're all one. And I think, uh, yeah, I heard that, but I'm not there right now. And if you go there, it's absolutely no help to me at all. <laughs> so, um, Well, I think you may be referring to the thought in, in the book of premature positive thinking. Pretending yeah, something's that true that, that isn't true. Say that less no, it may be some, something. <laughs> pretending that something true is true that isn't true for you. It may be the it truth, true yeah. but it's not true for me yet. You know, oh, mm-hmm. everybody's one. Well, you know, somebody tells me that, and I go, well, that makes sense. So that, I, and that's true. I mean. Einstein even documents that, but if I'm still thinking that the problem is that guy over there, that's not true for me. So that would be premature positive thinking, or I think another way to mm-hmm. speak about it or think about it is it's a, a spiritual bypass. Mm, no, I'll just, I'll just oh, take there he this goes. Yeah. That's <laughs> get out of the spiritual bypass you. game and do our work. Right. Absolutely. Well, everything he says, he talks about he kind of translated for me a word that I've never been able to apply very well because it's just a different language, a different word. talks about raising your vibration. And I thought, well, that sounds good. How do you do that and what does that mean? And he's hitching it up with just getting conscious, coming aware of that you're projecting, you have work to do. Uh, there are lots of ways to... Um, raise your vibration without calling it that. That's been very helpful. I'm not being very coherent, I'm afraid, on this, but it all ends up to tell everybody that 
if you have an issue, you've got to do your work on it, which is you've been singing that song ever since I started the radio show. If in AA they say, if you spot it, you've got it. And sometimes that feels pretty harsh, <laughs> but if you spot it and have a reaction, it is your garbage and needs work. There's so, the key, the reaction. Yeah, right. I mean, if you spot it, you got it. We wouldn't be able to see uh, an anomaly or some form of insanity if we hadn't been there, done that. If we didn't have the brain cells for it, we, our mind could mm-hmm. not create a construct around it. And if right. our mind creates a construct, we've been there, and there are two places we can have been there uh, from, and one of them is been there, done the work on it so I can spot it. I can hold a space of love for its healing and, and hold it accountable out of love. The other is I haven't done my work, and so I go nuts around it. And, and that's where the invitation is always for each of us to do our work. If I, I, I love the, um, the tests that The Course in Miracles offers. If you remember, one of them is, the, the easy one is, if you think of someone, are you at perfect peace? First test, mm-hmm. the easy one. And then the tough one is, if they think of you, do they share your perfect peace? <laughs> And that is tough. Yeah. If not, then you know, then we we've got a piece of the rope of the energy in there, and we can continue to clean that up until we can really return to that truly connected place, consciously. Mhm. He also said things like, "It's great to use affirmations. They could be like training wheels." They give you a picture of where you want to be, but if that's what you give yourself and haven't done the work, then the affirmations aren't going to do much for you. It's, this man is just synthesizing a lot of the things that you and Dr. Tim have been teaching. It's, cool. Well, you'll have to send me a link. My, my take is never use an affirmation. If you have to use an mm-hmm. affirmation, again, that's more of the premature positive thinking. Turn your affirmation right. into a mind shifter. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we've got a tool for that. Right. Use it as a mind shifter mm-hmm. and uncover the part of your mind in need of healing and do your healing work. I could say that. So I have for, the link. I have the link to that. In the, yeah, it's G-R-U-D-E-R. His first name's David and Laurie yeah. Morris, and it's... Um, TOTpodcast.net. I've got it, a link to it in the notes for today. And it's episode 46 is the one Dr. Tim was recommending we listen to. It's very good. Um, but you, you, Michael, you don't need to, you know it all, but it's a, a different way of presenting material. It was fun to listen to, answered a few questions. Yeah. Well, I'm really clear that I don't know it all. Well, Dr. Tim is going to be having him on the radio show sometime late in February. Yeah. Just very exciting, which means we can talk to him. We can press one and have some action there, too. Interact directly. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay. Very cool. All right, young lady, any other thoughts for you? Not at the moment. I'm just going to settle in and listen. You have a blessed one. Thank you, too. Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody else in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? 
No, it's all quiet on this end. Well, then let's... Podbean is also quiet, so... Okay. Well, let's head to uh, page 19 of the Enlightenment book, and let's see. As I look at page 19... It looks like by the time we get to the end of the first century definitions of the Aramaic words, we're at page 104. So we're through the easy part of the uh, of the text, or, or at least for the first uh, several pages, where it's just kind of history, and we're going to continue with that. So. So we were talking yesterday about the uh, Yonan Codex Foundation uh, original manuscript, which was 6th to 7th and estimates go later as well. And so uh, Dan, after working with that text, the Yonan, um, found that it wasn't the best source of understanding that higher level of law or the, the actuality of law Again, the word meaning how it works, as Yeshua taught it. And so in the first 13 chapters of, of Matthew, the only gospel recorded and promulgated in ancient Aramaic and in which much of this higher law is found has been lost and replaced with script on papyrus estimated to be of the 13th century. And the, the point is made here that uh, historically, anything other than Aramaic uh, to that Semitic mind would have been blasphemous. I mean, if you know any Semitic peoples, can you imagine they develop this wonderful, amazing flower and they turn to the Greeks and say, here, why don't you take it to the world? You know, we'll not do it in our language. I mean, it's just silly to say that it wasn't put in writing by the the Aramaic uh, minds that sourced that work. So with the sources at hand, and that was the Onan Codex at that point, the foundation scholars had difficulty understanding many of the Aramaic word meanings that seemed to be intended for Yeshua's first century audience. Since the integrity of the project was founded on revealing what Yeshua actually meant in his teachings, and neither assumptions nor implications would be acceptable, they needed certain knowledge of a word meaning to be true to their commitment. So... To help to resolve this, Dr. Yonan and uh, Dan went to Persia, modern-day Iraq, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Syria. They traveled pretty extensively in the Middle East, which were, and it was where Yonan had been born. So they were looking for um, deeper insight into those words, to the idioms, and especially the ones that, you know, the Western mind just didn't have a clue of it. The Greeks certainly didn't comprehend. Their journey took them to an ancient Kurdish monastery atop one of the mountains in Kurdistan, the land of Gozan, Gozan, uh, near the river Habor, or Kabor in Aramaic, hence the name of the manuscript, the Kaboris manuscript. The language of this monastery was Aramaic, as it was spoken by Yeshua, and Yonan and, and Dan went there in around 1964, and they were spent several days with the abbot 
who they said was over 100 years old and had to be carried everywhere on a pallet that he wasn't very uh, he he wasn't able to uh, mobilize under his own steam and uh, Yonan recalled or said at one point that he looked like a lump of dried clay from whence the smile and eyes of an angel blazed forth that was Yonan's um, description of the abbot of this monastery. So in conversation, a a, a number of critical insights came to the, uh, their attention through this abbot for especially, you know, they went with questions. What, what key words, you know, one of them was Rachma. And, you know, as I've shared before, when we were in California, there's an Aramaic-speaking community there that we spent some time with, and we asked them about the word Rachma. And their input was that they had lost the meaning of it. They didn't know exactly what it meant, but that their tradition said that it was the most precious jewel that you could possess. And so... The abbot explained some of those core words and much of the psychology of the Aramaic at the time, recognizing that, you know, when they talk about the Beatitudes, they're talking about a a literal construct or state of the mind that will support us functioning as human beings and how these different states of mind affected the mind's function. Uh, in that meeting, they were shown the Kaboris, and after a lot of discussion, prayer, uh, the monks consented to selling the the Kaboris, um, and with a specific uh, purpose of bringing truth to the West. So that was like their charge to Dan and Yonan in bringing that manuscript to the West. Uh, tragically, the remaining contents of the library were seized soon afterwards, and Turkish authorities uh, um, you know, basically stole what was there. And uh, if you look up the Istanbul, and I've never looked online to see if this is something that is online at this point, but the Istanbul Gazette on June 11, 1964, uh, had pictures and the story of the, uh, the documents that they still had there. And... Uh, as I said earlier, or last week, I guess, that uh, the suspicion was the monks were actually murdered. But nobody knows for sure what happened. So the Kaburis was scribed in the script of those early churches, but the manuscript was even older than the churches that were using it. Uh, the, the manuscript itself we've had dated twice at the University of Arizona. I think there's a, I know we've got a certificate of, of one of those in our files. Um, and the imprimatur tells us that the uh, words were copied from a second century manuscript. And that that manuscript, the original, which has since disappeared, uh, was between 100 and 230 A.D. Uh, the exact, exactness and correctness of the copy is certified by an, an imprimatur of the Bishop of the Church of Nineveh, and that church would have been one of the largest in that area at that time, 
and that's the one of the damaged pages of the codex. So the Kaburis that we have now is a copy of that original text and a complete text from that early Christian church. It's the whole complete New Testament according to the Eastern canon, and it brings Aramaic into the Western world more directly, especially when when the scholars worked with getting the first century meanings of the words, to bring forward the, the, the meaning of the words as they would have fallen from Yeshua's lips 2,000 years ago. It goes on to, to explain that the complete history of the Kaburis is unknown. We know it was scribed in Nineveh approximately 1095 AD and is an approved copy of that uh, manuscript. Uh, they describe it in the colophon as 100 years after the Great Persecution, which would have been the Jewish Revolt in 64 AD. So it would put the manuscript at about 164 AD. And the, it's on lamb's parchment. Uh, according to the Eastern canon, it's complete. It doesn't have uh, revelations or some of the minor epistles, which were not accepted by the Eastern Church. The script of the Codex is estranglio, which means to write the divine message. Estranglio script was specifically developed for Christian literature by the School of Edessa, which was located in what we now call Turkey. It was long thought to be a dead and unused language since the days of the Islamic context, uh, conquest in the 7th century. Really pretty crazy, these so-called religious wars, which of course had nothing to do with religion and had to do with the darkness in men's mind who used their projection of their religious beliefs as the excuse to carry out the darkness of their own minds, which is you know what all warring minds do. They'll find some reason, some justification. The uh, versing used in the Aramaic New Testament is in conformity with the King James Version, and uh, we're holding the space that these explanations, as we present them, will provide a deeper understanding and respect for the. And this is this was written by Dan. The truth, you know, the the most complete truth ever made known on earth, the teachings of Yeshua. And the acknowledgement is here that unfortunately we don't know what we don't know. So. There are going to be inevitable errors, and for those, an apology is offered. The, uh, the text of the Kaboris delivers the words expressing these higher laws, and again, recognizing this is not the rule of a superior that we're talking about when we're talking about law. We're talking about a... Uh, an ability and, and what we're hoping to do, what we're working to do with these two teachings with ourselves and with offering it to others is to empower people to have direct contact with these eternal forces which emanate from what we could only call the unknowable creator in terms of direct knowledge. And that when we're prepared, we're going to have contact with this law each of us individually, which is something the scriptures promise, 
that ultimately the teacher, the real teacher, is within each individual, and the mind has to be brought into harmony in order to cease interference with direct contact with these eternal forces. And so, we, you know, there's a, a word in Aramaic, rucha, or rucha. It's actually one of those guttural type sounds that, you know, if you really get really good at it, you kind of spit on people when you say it. And that word represents all of the eternal forces. So wind, air, fire, and water. Yeshua uses one of the other eternal forces when he's talking to to one of the uh, teachers from the temple. And he's, Yeshua talks to him about Ruka de Kutsha. And in Aramaic, that, that phrase has been translated by the Greeks as the Holy Spirit. But in Aramaic, it speaks of, and this is another one of those cases where, you know, a, a hyphenated word in Aramaic uh, turns into a whole paragraph in order to understand it. And so Yeshua has been talking to him about this specific elemental force and it's feminine in nature. The language um, uh, genders this term feminine, you know, as in, you know, if you're familiar with the Spanish language or the French language, there are words that are gendered feminine law, L-A and L-E, determine whether the, how they're gendered. So, so this particular term was gendered feminine in Aramaic. And that best understanding I have of that is what, what that gendered feminine idea means is that it is not of the solidified energy field. It is not of what we would call the physical world. And those things that are masculine, gendered masculine in the language, are those things which are already in what we call the physical world, in that lower level of energy. And this is a good place to plug in one of the core concepts of this work from uh, Albert Einstein, where he says, on such things as matter, we have been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy, energy whose vibrations have been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses, there is no matter. So Einstein's telling us matter doesn't exist. Our senses are attuned to a certain set of frequencies that we call material because our senses uh, imply to us that they are material. It, it's a fraud. It's a fantasy. You know, clearly you can prove it to yourself very easily that there's no such thing as physical just by clapping your hands together. And notice that, and many people would say, well, but wait a minute, that's proof that it is physical because one hand is solid and the other hand is solid, and when you clap them together, they, they inhibit each other's motion. Well, that's the first step in determining whether they're physical or not or whether there's something solid there. The second step is, now let's imagine that we make your left hand out of radio waves. And now clap your hands together and what happens? Well, obviously, the hand made out of radio waves passes right through the other hand. Proof that that other hand is clearly not solid. If it were solid then the left hand made of radio waves would not pass through it. 
there's more space there, which physics is telling us, than there is anything that resembles matter. And what resembles matter is nothing but packets of energy. Now, if you take this, the, the thought experiment just one step further, and let's make both of your hands out of radio waves again. And notice that when you go to clap them together, they'd appear solid again. Not because there's anything solid about a radio wave, that's silly, but when the two are of the same in the same atomic magnetic frequency range, create an interference pattern, and that's what makes things appear to be solid. And so when you recognize that we live in this energetic world, when the Aramaic genders the word feminine, it's speaking of an energy that is not in the realm that we would call physical. Gendered masculine would be something that is in the world that we would call matter. So with understanding this elemental force that was called Rukha Dikudsha, Rukha being the word that represents all of the eternal forces, earth, air, wind, fire, water, and that fifth element, Rukha. And the D would mean, similar to French, I guess, of, meaning of, an elemental force of, and Kutcha, the root of that word is kosher, which means that which is proper. So, we're not speaking of a disembodied spirit being here, but we're speaking of a feminine elemental force that inclines us toward that which is proper for humans. Kosher would be the root of that. So the this feminine elemental force is something that resides in all of us, as Yeshua taught it. And the extension of the definition of that would be this feminine elemental force. And there, in Aramaic, there are two functions that it has. One of them being a, an, an elemental force that has the power, when invited to do so, to undo the effects of our errors. I.e., if I ask that, if I've engaged in energy, remembering that you know everything is energy, and if you think about that word sin that we've talked about, that it is a, an archery term, and if you're on the archery range from firing at the bullseye and you miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper would yell sin, simply means you're off the mark. So if there is energy that I have taken into my structure that's off the mark for the integrated state of my so-called physical body-mind unit, my energy system, then I've introduced into my energy system through ignorance or an act of will an energy that does not belong in my energy system. And so Yeshua says that we each have in us this elemental force, of course, will not violate our free will, but if we invite it to, will undo the effects of that, i.e., if it's, you know, something in energy, remembering that the mind functions through every cell in the body, and this 
and mind energy is stored in every cell, if there is a particular organ that's been uh, weakened or distorted or assaulted by the energy of sin, an energy that's off the mark, then there is an elemental force in us that will undo the effects of that. And if that energy, remembering that every energy that moves in us sets up an energy field, if that energy field that has been set up by that error energy has had an impact on someone, somewhere, or something in the world, we have this all-inclusive force that has the ability, again, if we're willing, if we're not holding on to that energy for a reason, that has the ability to undo it and all of its effects. So undoing the effects of errors, and to me this is, this points back to the moment where Yeshua is in the Garden of Gethsemane and they talk about him taking on the sins of the world. He's not going to take anything from anybody that says, I need this, I'm going to hold on to this, I'm not letting go of this. He's not going to violate anybody's free will. But those who are stuck or lost in energy that they're willing to be finished with in essence, he had the privilege of saying, oh, I'm willing to be the space of active love to take those energetic patterns on and in the presence of the hem of my garment, in the extension of the presence of my love, I'm willing to be the space that transmutes those energies and frees you of them. And so there's Ruka de Kutcha that when we invite that feminine elemental force in us to go to work, undoes the effects of ours. And then the second major piece of that elemental force in us as humans is that it will teach us the truth. And in Aramaic, if we go back to that Ruku de Kutcha, in the creation story where that idea is first introduced, it's introduced, if you read the Greek texts, as the breath. It doesn't say, in, 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 in Greek it says, sent out its, God, the creator sent out its spirit. In Aramaic it doesn't say that, it says breath. And when you take the time to still your mind and breathe, it's when, at least in my experience, you'll have the deepest contact with that feminine elemental force. And for me personally, as I said, and when I thanked Susan for her input yesterday, that's the time, early in the morning is the time when I step into that breath and I find I get, uh, oftentimes I think a little bit to, um, to Jeannie's chagrin because she's wanting to sleep and I'm reaching for my phone making notes for the download that I'm getting. So my apologies for that, honey. It's just it's the time when that information comes. So this dual elemental force is unknown in the Western world, 2,000 years. And the Greeks have been talking about some kind of disembodied spirit being and all, all the, the stories about it with no knowledge of the direct implication that it is brought to you by your breath. And that's where the still point breathing becomes so important because when we take breath away from something, when we remove our breath from an energy that we've taken into our field, that energy solidifies. You're remembering that we are 
human energy systems and every energy that we engage in is stored holographically in every cell and where the breath is taken away that's where that energy solidifies becomes concretized and ends up being passed from generation to generation to generation what is in us that we need to in our generational patterns undo I was talking to someone recently who was doing a lot of research into ancestry and found out that two of their ancestors, a grandmother and a grandfather, back in the 1700s or so, had come over from England to Virginia and arrived in Virginia and had their first child here in Virginia at the age of 11. Think about what two children of 11, I mean, I've been contemplating this since I heard that conversation. What, what do you suppose two children at the age of 11, you know, I think about our granddaughter, Ari Rain, who's five, and this would be something that would be happening to her in just six years, that one, she'd be pregnant, and two, she'd be taken from her home, put on a ship under who knows what conditions, and brought to Virginia. There's a, a, uh, a national park and museum up in northern Virginia that we visited a few years back, and one of the inscriptions on the wall of that, I, I can only imagine 11 that these two children must have been forced to come here as indentured servants. There are no parents, they didn't come with parents. Uh, and I can only imagine they must have come as indentured servants. And I know when we visited this uh, kind of museum, national park uh, display about the early settlers in Northern Virginia, there was one letter that was written by a tax collector who had come over from England to, you know, do some of the king's bidding, whatever that was. And part of the letter that he wrote was about the conditions of those who had come over as indentured servants. And what he wrote was that these people would have been better off dead than living as indentured servants in early America. I can't fathom. My mind can only imagine what two children of 11 with a girl that's pregnant and a boy that's 11 that got her pregnant are here having a baby in Virginia in 17, whatever it was, 25, 35, something in that range. What do you suppose became concretized? How much breath holding do you suppose two children of 11 in this state, and how much breath-holding do you suppose happened with the child that was reared out of the minds and experience of these two children at 11 in a place where an adult of the day said these people would be better off dead than in this situation? What gets passed on in our genes? And, and are we willing to breathe deeply enough, fully enough, to access 
whatever the thought disorders, I mean, we can only imagine, I mean, what the thought disorders would have been for two kids in that situation at the age of, I mean, think, I think of myself at 11, fathering a child, living in 17, mid-1700s America, and I can't imagine that two kids, 11, just went over and said, hey, I want a passage on a ship and I want to go to America. How much breath holding? How many atrocities? How much insanity? And, of course, that's just one little tiny piece of history that doesn't even go into, you know, the the kinds of tragedies and travesties that happened and things like the Napoleonic Wars and the, the Mongols invading. And when we look at the crazy stuff that's gone down, What's come down in each of our genes? Yeshua was talking about this 2,000 years ago. I was talking about this with Jeannie yesterday, and one of the uh, the passages that comes to mind repeatedly for me when I think of what that culture was doing, and again, imagine what goes on in people's minds that they could possibly conceive of doing this behavior. But there's a passage that's laid out in the Old Testament where there's a young girl who's the son of a tribal Jewish chief. And one of the other tribes, I don't remember which one, and I'm sure the story tells what it is, but whichever it was, was not part of the Jewish community, and these two young people get together and they're playing footsie. And the young man, the young boy, professes his love for this girl and goes to the father of the girl and professes his love and says he wants to marry her. And the father, who's the head of this particular tribal group, says yes, okay. but you're going to have to follow some rules. And kid has the agreement, the young man has the agreement of his father, who's a tribal chief in this, whatever the, the other group was. And part of the negotiated settlement in order not to kill the young man for violating his daughter, he requires and the father agrees that the people who are of that other group will join their Judaic tradition and religion and become Jews. And they move forward with the agreement and the idea that these two young people will marry. And all of the men of the tribe are circumcised. How good a fighter do you suppose a man is the day after he's been circumcised? And the father of the girl takes his warriors in and slaughters every relative of this young man, the women, the children, the men who have just been circumcised. What? 
carrying in our genes, what individually and collectively, and I'm talking about all of us, you know, that's just one particular story, but you look at the, the stories and the history that we know of, what level of work, and this is so, so that's the audience that Yeshua is speaking to. That's the audience, you know, you go back to Moses, that's the audience Moses was speaking to. And you hear the mind that is, has not done its own shadow work, and it's, the, the, it's a very common phrase yet today. So, well, even Moses said an eye for an eye, and that mind that has not done its own shadow work, has its own darkness, has not discovered itself as the active presence of love with the, the ability to function out of generosity and love, that mind takes it as a permission to do vengeance. When you go back with the mind that isn't, that has done its own shadow work, a mind that is founded and functioning out of the energy that the human mind is designed to function off of, and that is love, that mind hears Moses say that, and that mind doesn't hear permission to take vengeance. Oh, okay, if somebody took out your eye, go take out their eye. If someone knocked out your tooth, go t knock out their tooth. That's not what the mind of love hears. What the mind of love recognizes is Moses was saying, you can't go kill their whole family, the whole community for a, a single, a simple offense or, or even a terrible offense. You can't do it. Moses, when you look at that with the mind connected to love, is limiting the retribution and the violence available to them that they couldn't do a disproportionate response to an offense. He wasn't commanding taking retribution. He was limiting retribution for those minds that had not done the work to return themselves to this state of love. So when we hear Yeshua say first order business, when you think of neighbor and, you know, when you listen to that story of the, the tribal chief and his daughter who's been violated and the, the son who did the violation and the father of that son, each of these people are neighbors. And in Aramaic, you've got to understand that the, the, the word neighbor does not mean the guy down the block. It does not mean the guy next door or the guy on the other side of town. The word neighbor in Aramaic is a mental word and, in essence, basically saying, if you think of someone, then you're their neighbor or they are your neighbor. And the first requirement of the law was you had to have this gateway open in your mind so that love was the presence in you that fueled your structure, that you were functioning as a human being. This is what Yeshua is attempting to bring to people. So this is... As the text is talking about here on page 20, this is the higher law. This is the highest law. Presented it 2,000 years ago, and that's what he presented, this, this understanding to those who 
stood around him and basically, you know, with, and, and again, thank you, Susan, for your input yesterday, but I think about that passage that I repeat so often where a group of disciples are with Yeshua and they ask him what they need to do to please the Creator and he tells them and half of the audience says, too hard a saying, and they leave. And in essence, I think what we could could understand is that when Yeshua gave them the answer as to what to do, what he was saying was, you have to do your shadow work. You have to go in and deal with all of the generational patterns of hostility and fear in you to arrive at a place where the eternal forces from God are perceivable, detectable by your mind. Because if you have the interfering patterns of rage and guilt and grief and hatred and vengeance and who knows what happened to two 11-year-old kids that were pregnant when they arrived in America in the 1700s. He's, he's saying that that disables your mind and its ability to detect these eternal forces in which you live, move, and have your being. And you've formulated a self, a false self, that functions out of those energies and they inhibit your ability to have direct contact with these eternal forces. And basically, half of the disciples, if you go back and read that passage, said, too hard a saying. And if you read, even in the Greek translations of that particular passage, the, the statement, you know, the, the instruction he gives, you know, he uses an Aramaic idiom. He said, well, what do we need to do and his answer is, you need to eat my body and drink my blood, which today we would understand to mean take communion. Obviously, it couldn't have been about taking communion 2,000 years ago because half of the disciples said too hard a saying, like what's hard about a little wine and wafers? But half of his disciples said too hard a saying and they left. And and as the discussion, if you read, if you go back and do some research on that passage, as the Greeks interpreted, the Greeks acknowledged that there are two different words that are used. There are two different parts of the conversation where this idea of eat my body and drink my blood is used. And in, in the first one, uh, the first occurrence of it, it's a, a word is used, translated by the Greeks, as a word that has to do with sitting down to a meal, like you're eating food. In the second occurrence of that in the conversation, the Greek word they use is more like an animal would gnaw at a bone. Implies that and, and, you know, you look at how many times we've looked at these passages over and over and over in different contexts, and I purposely bring them up in different contexts because in each case, it gives an opportunity to clean up another part of the mind that holds these energetic patterns that inhibit our ability to be in touch with, in contact with the eternal forces, and helps us to build the brain cells to get, for the mind to be able to have a broader and broader and broader understanding that can support our being functioning as love. But the second occurrence in the Greek, uh, you know, if you look at the finer Greek ideas there, it speaks about gnawing on these teachings. And that's what we've been doing for the last 12 years. That's what I've been doing for the last, 
since I started working with the Amerit 43, 4, 5 years ago. It's gnawing on it. It's gnawing on it because there are so many energetic patterns. I mean, they're just... If you imagine a bird's wings, this is how I was shown it at one point. If you imagine a bird's wings and every feather moving in a direction to produce a result, that an understanding would be as complex as the largest set of bird's wings moving in unison to produce an energetic motion toward And as language developed, it moved people toward whatever the mind energy was of the people developing the language. And if the energetic patterns under the development of the language was hostility, fear, violence, viciousness, and war, then the energies that would move in one as a result of the use of those words of that language would create this, you know, imagine the, the, a set of giant eagle's wings, or let's think about an albatross. The stroke of those wings would move one, those energetic patterns, every feather moving in the direction would, pr would produce an impetus in a certain direction. And why do we have to gnaw on the teaching? Why do you have to take it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper within you? Because each feather moving that albatross's wing set would represent an energetic inclination toward a certain behavior. And if your inclination toward a certain behavior is based in hostility or fear, it's not just one little thought moving it, but each thought that moves people toward violence, toward hostility or fear, would be like the stroke of every feather in the albatross's widespread wings. And that, each stroke that contributes to that, ultimately needs to be forgiven. That's the depth of the forgiveness work. And then to build into the mind energetic patterns that are in harmony as you gnaw on the eternal forces, in harmony with those eternal forces, then you build a strength, a power like those eagle's wings or that albatross's wing to move you toward being in harmony, being in, in sensibility in, in, in a sensibility type of contact, being sensitive to those eternal forces that are always around us, that are always moving and always available, but move nothing else if there's no resonance for it, if the resonance is out of the hostilities and fears and the breath-holding of a thousand generations, then those things can be presented to us, but there's nothing to move in us to produce that motion toward. 
as you build the brain cells, as you interact. You know, we've been doing this conversation for 12 years. And, you know, take any given example that I use. I've used several of them today, and I've used them a thousand times. And each time, it's like building that wing structure, building that energetic structure toward that which will lift you into the ability to actually be in direct contact with and function out of these eternal forces. And those who refuse to do, have not done their shadow work, will not engage in the forgiveness process, would be the situation where Yeshua talked about the house divided against itself. Can't stand. And in essence, what my take would be of that idiom that he used, eat my body and drink my blood, that these disciples so rejected that they left. They said, too hard a saying. They're saying you have, to, you have to work with every bit of energy in your bloodline, in your genes, in your structure that moves against these eternal forces that are based in love. You've got to confront them. You've got to work through them. You've got to forgive them. That is, remove them from your structure. And you have the assistance of this singular elemental force that is there only at your will. It's not going to interfere because we were handed that free will. And if the, the forces for violence, for, for war, for hatred, for abuse, for pain, for depression, for negativity are born and bred in you, this is not a work that's done in a day or two or a year or two or five or ten. Because every influence in all of our generations move us in a, one direction or another. And those who said too hard a saying said, I just can't do that level of work. I'm leaving, and they left, and they never came back. Here's hoping that you're with us to stay and to do this work that is so necessary to return to us as human beings, the tender beings that we are made of the active presence of love, bringing healing to each of those generational assaults, each of those energetic patterns that moves us in a negative direction, each feather that unfolds in one direction or another, and those that move toward any form of hostility or fear being plucked out, forgiven, removed. It is a hard saying, no question. And we're here to support it being done. So appreciation for you joining us. We hold the space for you to do the deepest, most powerful and profound work in your life, of your life, and create the best year yet of your eternal life. Blessings.